My name is Andrew, and welcome to MIR Meets. Moshe Lander is an economics professor at McGill. I was one of his students last year, and he helped me learn a lot about economics in an extremely engaging way. One of the hallmark features of his lectures was the simple fact that he would argue with his own students pretty often about anything and everything related to economics. From rent control to behavioral economics to free trade, you could expect him to whip out a snappy rebuttal to whatever counterargument you could think of, except maybe externalities, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, for today's episode, I thought it'd be nice to bring him onto the podcast to discuss both his journey as an economics professor and his take on many of the most pressing economic issues of our current political environment. Hope you enjoy. Moshe Lander, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah. So you've once mentioned to me that like your role as an economics professor has to do with like an analogy that relates to the Oscars. So could you give that analogy to the audience to get them up to speed about like what type of economics professor you are? Sure. So, you know, the the story that I like to tell my students is that uh, if you watch the Oscars, you'll see that... Um, you know, George Clooney and Brad Pitt, you know, have these prominent seats in the in the theater. But what you don't see is off camera on the side are, are people that they pluck off the street. And the people off the street are, you know, told to line up before the Oscars begin. They show up in tuxedos and ball gowns and things like that. And uh, what happens is when George Clooney or Brad Pitt, you know, need to go to the washroom uh, to make sure that the theater always looks full for the camera, they take these people off of the uh, sidelines and basically put them in Brad Pitt's seat. Uh, I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm not, you know, George Clooney and I don't pretend to be, uh, my value is that I'm the one who stands on the sideline and can jump into their seats. So, you know, when, when a faculty member is retiring or when they go on sabbatical or when the university wants a, a new course or where they're looking to try and drum up interest, you know, my value added is that I can jump into those positions uh, relatively seamlessly and I can jump out of those positions when, when the star comes back. So, uh, you know, I, I think that my value to a lot of universities is, is more in that capacity than as like star researcher or, or star instructor. Yeah. Um, but what what made you want to study economics in the first place? Um, you know, I, I, I had always grown up in a business household. Um, and as a high school student, uh, my dreams were to go to the local university, which is the University of Western Ontario, now badly rebranded as Western University in London, Ontario. Uh, and I was going to go to the biz school there. I, my plan was, you know, get a bachelor in business administration within four years, get an MBA within two years, get a PhD four years after that. And I'd be running a multinational company uh, by the time that I was 30. And uh, I, I certainly kind of uh, set myself up in high school to, to do that. And I think I lasted about six weeks uh, in the business program in university and realized I hated everybody around me. I, I, I didn't like the instructor. I didn't like the other students. Uh, I, I didn't like the, um, it's almost like the arrogance of the students that they went to business school and somehow they thought they were better than everybody else. Um, and, and the thing that really got me in those first six weeks was my intro economics professor. He was down to earth. He showed up in jeans and a, you know, a golf shirt and he, he made economics fun. And it, it was really uh, interesting. And it, it spoke to me. And when we talked about how people behave I, I was kind of looking around at my classmates, like, does this not seem really obvious? And, and it wasn't by any means obvious. It was just that it, it was really speaking to the core of who I was. And, you know, six weeks in, I just signed the form and said, no, I want to be an econ major. And that was that. Yeah. Um, but that um, that reminds me, you mentioned uh, to me once that like your very first time as an econ professor was technically when you were 18. Would you mind giving that story to the audience? Yeah, it, it it was um when I got into second year, one of the required courses we had to take was uh econometrics course, it was statistics. And the professor uh was uh very busy and, and he was uh very well recognized for work that he was doing in his field. And you know, after about six months in a full year course, uh he was called away. He, he was 
basically presenting his research elsewhere. And on his way out the door, he kind of pulled me aside and said, uh, you know, you can teach. It wasn't exactly in the best English, but it was clearly conveyed that now I'm going to teach the course. Um, I, I don't think that he necessarily fully understood that I was actually in the course, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a real honor that, that he thought that I was that skilled at that age that I could teach my, my peers. And so I ended up teaching them uh, as well as myself, of course, for uh, his duration while he was away. And after that, it, it turned into basically a full-time gig that, that grew out of that. And, and so, uh, you know, ever since then, I've been taking any teaching job anywhere that I can find. Uh, you know, I got really lucky that not only did I find the discipline that spoke to me, but I found a job that spoke to me too. And, and that just made it uh, something that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, could you explain to the audience why you consider intro micro, intro micro to be your favorite course to teach students? So, you know, everybody has their own favorite course. I, I find that economics gets a, a bad rep. It, it's uh, dry, it's dull, it's boring, it's too many graphs, it's too much math. It, it's really off-putting to a lot of students that maybe want a little bit of a freer hand to kind of think about uh, the world in in different ways. And to me, I, I kind of find it unfortunate that that perception exists. So if I can get students at an intro micro level and share with them some of my enthusiasm and some of my passion and some of the stuff that really encouraged me to go into economics, that's the type of thing that you know, that that's part of what being a professor is. It's to profess. It's not just to profess your knowledge, but it's to profess your your experiences and your enthusiasm. So if I can get them at that intro level before they've had a chance to uh, maybe confirm their biases and, and really run into maybe a, an instructor who would rather be elsewhere, um, I, I find that's a lot easier. If I get them in third year, fourth year, you know, it's possible that the damage has been done. The fact is that teaching undergrads is a, a really thankless and difficult job. I, I, I'm not looking necessarily for sympathy uh, or that my colleagues necessarily need sympathy, but you know, when they have research agendas in front of them and, and that's how they get tenure and that's how they get advancement in their career, when they're teaching intro level classes where say 90% of the enrollees are not going to continue on, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, cost benefit analysis, you'd rather put your resources towards teaching, uh, or sorry, towards research, rather than teaching. And so sometimes, you know, students pick up on that, and they, they realize that maybe the instructor would rather be somewhere else. Uh, I'm not really all that interested in doing research anymore. Uh, I'd rather be sharing that enthusiasm. So, you know, getting them on the ground floor is, is much easier than getting them once they've been ruined. Yeah. And one of the pluses of like being invested in that is that a lot of the curriculum, like teaching it feels like second nature to you, right? Yeah. It, it, it you know, intro micro is the course that by far I've taught the most. So I, I'd probably guess that in my teaching experience, if we count up like all the universities that I've taught at over all the years, I, I've probably taught that intro micro course uh, easily, easily a hundred times, maybe even closing in on 150, 175 times. So, you know, the, the fact is that intro micro hasn't changed all that much uh, over the years, right? And so because we're going to do supply and demand and opportunity costs and elasticities, the, I've kind of worked on my routine to a point that it's kind of second nature that you can change the book, fine, you can change the notation, but it doesn't change the underlying concepts. And so that, that makes it a little uh, easier too, from my standpoint to teach, but it also helps students as well, because they're getting an instructor who is experienced, who is polished, who has seen almost every question or every issue. Um, sometimes those intro courses are filled by people with much, much less experience who are starting out in their economics career. Uh, and they don't necessarily realize that what might've come easy to them is not coming easy to your typical 17, 18 year old who's maybe only looking to take economics because they thought it might be interesting or because they need it as a degree requirement elsewhere. So, uh, you know, that, that also can create that sort of self-sustained that, Hey, it's, it's good for me. And the university recognizes that it might also be good for them then to, to put me in those positions. Yeah. And you've done it so often that it's, it's sort of like those times where you're watching a Netflix special of someone performing in, in front of like a thousand people. They say something funny and then one of the, like someone in the crowd responds to them with another witty remark. 
And then the speaker responds to that witty remark with another witty remark. And it all feels it all feels extremely natural, but in reality, it's just a product of like practicing what you are saying so often and so often that you know how to basically respond to how students might respond in your case, for example. It, that's a great analogy. I can't think of where you would have come up with that, but yeah, it's a, it, yeah, it's, yeah that, that's exactly the analogy. You know, I, I guess these days then uh, what I'm maybe not as prepared for is maybe kind of a Will Smith, Chris Rock sort of situation that... Uh, you know, if a student actually were to go kind of outside of the, the traditional comments or the traditional sort of behavior, uh, maybe I'm not as equipped for that. But again, I, I'm not sure that necessarily anybody else is going to be as equipped either, uh, given those sorts of black swan events. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, can I can I change the subject and talk about something completely unrelated? Of course. Uh, Yes. How do you think that the economic recovery from the pandemic over the last few years compares to the economic recovery from like the 2008 recession, for example? So it, it's a really different sort of recession. The, the thing with recessions is that they're all different. Uh, we, we teach in an intro macro class, right? That, you know, you have this business cycle and there's an expansion, a peak, and then a contraction. And that contraction is what we would call a recession. But Recessions are all different. And so this particular recession is very different. It's being driven by the, the supply side constraints that globalization and COVID combined have laid bare. The 2008 collapse was mostly driven by excess demand. So the, the way to treat a recession is going to be different, much in the same way that if somebody goes to a doctor and says, I'm feeling sick, everybody might be feeling sick but they might be feeling sick in their own particular way or the particular medication or treatment that's needed to deal with that particular sickness might be different as well. So it's, it's a very different recession. And so the nature of the recovery uh, is going to be very different as well. And I think what we have right now is only a partial recovery. And honestly, I, I think what the economy really needs right now, weird as it is to say is, I think we need a really good recession right now. Uh, and that's the type of thing that will actually create a longer term uh, benefit than trying to fumble along out of COVID and hope that we'll just find a way back to where we were pre-COVID. When you said like it, you think it would be good to have a recession, do you mean that like central banks should raise interest rates really high to fight inflation? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, let's let's be careful with what really high means. I, I don't think that in Canada, really high needs to go above, you know, 4%, 5%, right? I don't, I don't think that we need to talk about double digit uh, interest rates like we had in Canada 30, 40 years ago. But yeah, um, increase interest rates to, to choke off inflation before it really takes root. Uh, and if that happens to slow down the real economy and, and generate a recession, that's not the worst thing that could happen at this point. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily be saying that, you know, we should be hearing the governor of, of the Bank of Canada saying we're going to raise interest rates till we cause a recession. But I think if that's a byproduct of increasing interest rates, I, I don't think that there should be a lot of uh, uh, of worry that that happened. So would you say would you say that uh, causing a recession is like sufficient but not necessary condition to mean that like it's on a good path to economic recovery? Yeah, well, let, let's let's not use like necessary conditions and sufficient conditions, right? I, I think if we start resorting to mathematical proof uh, terminology, right, this is probably not what your listeners want. Um, <laughs> let, let's take it this way. Um, you know, students can appreciate that in the lead up to exams, they, they probably don't live the best lifestyle. Even if they're living the best lifestyle during a regular semester, things get a little messy around exam times, right? There's a, a lot of excess that goes on. Excess could be that, you know, they start taking, you know, pills to kind of keep them awake or keep them focused. They maybe don't sleep regularly or they sleep a lot less than usual. And their dietary habits, which might be bad at the best of times, become outrageously bad. Um, you know, and it gets them through the, the, the exam period. Okay. Um, but what do most students usually do in that immediate aftermath? Once exams are done, it's, they go back home and they sleep it off for a week or two. Right. Um, that's kind of like the analogy that I'd use to explain the economy right now is that a lot of really bad habits were developed to get us through the pandemic. And they're the type of things that we really would not normally do, 
but we needed to do to get us through those unprecedented times. I'm talking as if COVID is over. It's obviously not, but let's hope that the worst of it is over. And so what the economy needs right now is to figure out how do they sleep it off? How do they get rid of the dead weight in the economy that was allowed to survive through the pandemic, but probably should not have? And the only way to do that is to trigger a recession where you know, you're going to see that the the worst-run businesses are going to be pushed to the brink, and in this case, probably allowed to fail. Releases assets out into the economy. Those that can use it more productively are going to buy it up, and it's going to kind of refocus where the strengths and weaknesses of the economy are, so that we can channel towards those strengths going forward. Yeah, but like circling back to the bad habits that you mentioned earlier, where the analogy would be like bad habits that a student would build up in the lead up to an exam. In this real life case, would you say that like the bad habits that were necessary to get us out of the pandemic, are you referring to like federal stimulus spending um, in order to help the the economy recover? Yeah, yeah. So if I if I wanted to use another bad analogy, right? You know, if, if you have a patient, yes, that please, thought please of, do. Sure, I'm I'm filled with them. I can keep your entire podcast filled with them. Um, look, let let's say that uh, you know a patient comes into an emergency ward in a hospital. I'm not even talking about COVID. Just whatever it is that they have, right? It's a life threatening illness. Most doctors will tell you that they will do what's necessary to keep that patient alive and get them through the worst of whatever that crisis is. That's the life and death issue. It's once the patient stabilizes that they then worry about how do we now move this patient forward back to full recovery. And so, you know, when, when COVID started roaming its way around the world, I think a lot of governments kind of took the approach of here is a really sick patient right now, right? This is an economy that is flatlining in a lot of places with lockdowns, closures, um, you know, social distancing that we, we totally were unprepared for. And I think what a lot of that government stimulus was, was just basically pumping a patient filled with drugs <laughs> to, to just get them through. And I think that now that there's that chance to say, all right, the patient is stable, um, how do we get them to full recovery? So for sure, the removal of government stimulus is, is one of those key things that's going to need to be done. But you know, one way that you can think about it too, Andrew, is that there were businesses that were probably dying anyway, even if the pandemic had not hit. And so what comes to mind are things like movie theaters or a lot of retail stores. Um, the, the world was moving against those industries. But when COVID hit, they were recipients of government largesse, just like other industries. And they survived. And now that we're getting onto the other side of the worst of the pandemic, you know, should we really be allowing uh, movie theaters to continue on? Should we be trying to support the, the local retailer, or should we recognize that the world was moving towards Amazon anyway? The world was moving towards Amazon Prime. So maybe what we should do is allow these businesses or these industries to fail uh, and release those assets, not just the physical assets, but the, the human assets, right? The, the workers and release them out into the economy and say, now go find a, a new place where you belong uh, and, and think of what the next part of the 21st century economy is going to look like. Yeah. So to, to com complete the analogy about the, the person in the hospital where they're pumped full of drugs, where like the drugs are the federal stimulus spending. And then after, after they're done with like the immediate um, thing that they're trying to cure, the next step is like the secondary bad thing that was one of the side effects of the drugs, which in this case would be inflation. Yeah. And that's, a, that's exactly it, right? So if you're going to continue with the analogy, right, when, once you kind of leave that behind, I, I think most intro macro students know that when you print a lot of money, it's going to spill over to inflation at one point or another. So we're not going to experience, uh, you know, the classic stories of Germany after the First World War, Zimbabwe 20 years ago. Uh, but we are seeing that inflation is now starting to rear its head. And it, it's one of those beasts that we thought we had tamed uh, in the last 30 years. And so before that is allowed to rear its head again and become the problem that it was in the 1970s and 1980s in, in the Western world, at least, um, let's rein it in right now. And so, you know, I guess if we're going to continue with that bad analogy, it's, you know, these days, I, I guess the story is that you pump your patient full of drugs and we're seeing that what's left behind are a bunch of people that are addicted to pills, right? Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that's actually a very good analogy. 
thank you. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that what you have right now is that there are a lot of people that kind of in just a, a year, 18 months, got addicted to that government stimulus and say, like, where is it? Like, I'm not going back to a job. I don't want to go back to work. I, I don't, uh, you know, we, we see talk about um, the guaranteed basic income much more now than we did three years ago, because people have now said, well, that could be the foundation for it. Well, no, it, it shouldn't be the foundation for it. Um, we need to get back to focusing on, uh, you know, people have to work, they have to generate an income, and that the government should not be in the business of providing people with their livelihoods uh, beyond what a government is supposed to do uh, based on, you know, democratic voting of its citizens. Yeah. But like you mentioned that, like for the last several decades, we've sort of tamed inflation to the point where like, this is something that we haven't really experienced in a while. So do you think that there has been like any sort of movement in particular from people that hadn't really experienced the inflation from many decades ago and sort of tried to downplay the like the negative effects of inflation because they still wanted things like federal stimulus spending for example yeah i i think that people don't necessarily realize what damage inflation can do because we haven't seen it in 30 years right and so it's one of those things that the, the people that would have seen it are going to be our parents and generally speaking we don't listen to our parents <laughs> any more so than our parents listen to theirs right it's yeah it's the cycle of history so for our parents to talk about i remember a day when inflation was 20 percent or when interest rates were 22 percent it's like yeah 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 whatever you say um you know the, the fact is that inflation is is a very damaging thing to an economy and uh i i think that the the analogy that we could use is that it's a little bit of that grease for the wheel you know if you don't put any grease on the wheel what an old analogy but if you don't put yeah. any grease on the wheel um the wheel cracks it breaks and you you can't transport your goods to market right you put too much grease on the wheel and it can't get any traction and you're you're stuck spinning your wheels because you can't propel anything forward so i i think that what central bankers have learned over the last three, four, five decades is that inflation is just one of those things that you just need a little bit of it. And that's enough to kind of move the economy forward, uh, keep traction and, and propel uh, an economy to higher levels of standard of living. But too much of it is going to actually be detrimental. And I, I think that we're starting to see a little bit of that detrimental behavior beyond just the government stimulus bit that uh, people are now starting to demand a pretty outrageous sorts of wage increases that aren't backed by any sort of Wait, productivity. Wage increases. increases, is that connected to like the great resignation? Not necessarily. I, I think that it's just a matter of that if I'm seeing that my grocery bill has gone up 5% in the last six months, or I'm seeing that that particular staple of my life is now way more expensive, say like gasoline, right? If If you own a car and you're saying, wait a second, I'm now paying over $2 a liter. What's this all about? Uh, that's when I go into the boss's office and I say, hey, I, I want a 7% raise now. I'm not content with 2%. That's not keeping up with things. But once that that gets rewarded, it just triggers the idea, well, if 7% was successful, then why don't I ask for 8 or 9 But the fact is that once you start rewarding those crazy requests, that itself becomes inflationary. And that's how the nasty cycle can begin. Yeah. Um, so there's this one question that I, I'm almost a hundred percent certain I know how you're going to respond, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what would you, what would you say to like the argument, uh, from some people online that our current inflation is largely the product of massive, massive price gouging on the part of corporations. So, uh, it's my turn to turn the, uh, the microphone onto you. So what, what, what do you think that I would say? I think that you would say that that is an incorrect argument. Uh, you are you are a good student, Andrew. Yes, that is that is that is a bad argument. the 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 idea that businesses are price gouging is one of those great conspiracy theories. That you know, any good conspiracy theory has just an element of plausibility, but is not provable, right? And so, I think that that's one of those situations where if you have this proclivity to look at business as the source of trouble then yeah, why not put this at their feet? Re remember that businesses 
um, are operating in an environment where they just can't set the price in any way that they want. Uh, you set the price too high and you're going to trigger a competitor who comes in and says, I can do this for less. Uh, so that competitor might not already be in the marketplace, but you, you get a little too crazy with your pricing. Uh, it, it is going to create a, a fleet of competitors who are going to steal your business away from you. So, uh, you know, businesses are constrained at the end of the day that they can only push their prices so high. And that's true of any business. So we could be talking about the smallest of small farmer in Saskatchewan. Would they not love to be able to increase the price of their wheat as high as they can? Yeah, and they do. They increase it as high as they can. But the fact is that the constraints of the marketplace say that this is how high you can get away with it uh, before it becomes a problem and you're not going to sell any of your wheat. So um, inflation is not being driven by price gouging. And I'm sure that you can find anecdotal evidence of a company here or there that is price gouging. Uh, but the fact is that that existed even in low inflation times as well. The, the issue for businesses is that the nature of this particular uh, world that we find ourselves is where there are big time supply chain issues. And so if they're having a difficult time getting their goods to market, uh, that shows up in higher costs. And either those higher costs have to be passed along in higher prices or in smaller profits. And each business has to decide which one of those two is the lesser evil. And a lot of businesses have decided that the lesser evil is to pass on the price increases rather than reduce the payment to shareholders. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, basically firms raise the price as high as they can without, for example, losing profit. Um, would you say that um, over the past like decade or two, a lot of like competitive firms have been granted an increased amount of like market power that has allowed them to earn more profit than they would have before? Yeah. Now that's probably a fair assessment, right? So a, a lot of countries will have some form of uh, a government authority that reviews things like mergers or that checks to make sure that uh, industries are as competitive as can be. Some industries are just not naturally competitive, right? So a classic example would be, you know, hydropower in Quebec is one of those things that a competitive market doesn't really make a lot of sense. If you had firms that are competing with each other to build dams, uh, that's probably not as good as just having one firm that runs the show. But you would have some sort of government agency that would want to look at, uh, is this particular market uh, as competitive as can be? And if it's not as competitive as can be, then you try and change the laws or rules in a way to stimulate competition. So I, I think what's happened is that a, a lot of these agencies have been defanged and they're not looking as carefully at whether certain mergers or whether certain behaviors are in the public interest. And I, I think that there's almost a capture principle at play here where they're almost becoming uh, the, the affections of businesses that want to lobby them to say, look, I know that this is going to impose some harm, but not we're bribing you to look the other way, certainly not, but it's not as bad as you think. And we can tell a compelling enough story that makes you back off and really not want to dig into this. Uh, and that just kind of creates then that chain effect that if you didn't object to this last merger, why would you now object to this merger? And, and the market is, yeah, moving away from maybe as competitive as it could be. Yeah. Um, but to slightly change the subject again, could you explain to the audience, um, you mentioned this in a podcast appearance earlier, but could you mention to the audience why the Canadian economy is like inextricably intertwined with the U.S. economy? I, I mean, it, it's always been that way, right? The, the easiest trade models that exist out there um, rely on stealing from, from physics, uh, in something called the gravity model. And so the gravity model is simply saying that trade between two countries is connected to their relative sizes, say their GDP, uh, and negatively related to their distance. So in other words, the further away you are from a particular country, the less likely you are to trade with that country. Well, in the case of Canada and the US, we are about as close as can be. We have the longest shared border that's undefended, uh, of any two countries in the world. 
and we have very large GDPs per person, which puts us in that category then that we should naturally be trading a lot with each other uh, just on that alone. But when you add to it that we have, to a large degree, a, a shared common history, uh, we have a shared language, uh, we have a lot of shared culture and experiences, much as Canadians might object to that idea, but the fact is we're heavily influenced by American music, American television, uh, American media. The, the fact is that we are very, very similar, and, and that should make it even more likely that we're going to trade with each other. And so when you have that friendliness added to the story as well, we're not at each other's throat. I think the last time that uh, we were not seeing eye to eye was... Uh, 1812, right? When Canada famously uh, went and burned down the White House, right? So, yeah. you know, um, in 200 years, we really haven't had a, a major disagreement with the US. Uh, and so, of course, what's going to happen then is we're going to view from an economic standpoint that we're really one sort of integrated economy with each other. Yeah, we have our own central banks. Yeah, we have our own governments. And, you know, at the provincial and state level, of course, we have those uh, distinctions as well. But the fact is that it really does make a lot of sense that if we're going to talk about this as one economy, then you start creating these long supply chains that, uh, you know, we extract oil and gas in Alberta and we ship it into the US for refining or the Americans choose to build uh, cars on this side of the border and have it passed back and forth between Windsor and Detroit uh, into a fully fledged Ford, right? So, the, the economies are naturally integrated. And the thing is that the more we integrate with each other, the more that leads to more integration. Because when you see something that works, why not continue to go to what works well? Yeah. But maybe that also means that like if one one country suffers extremely high inflation, like the US is suffering extremely high inflation relative to many countries in Europe, for example, maybe that bleeds into Canada a little bit and causes them to experience inflation a little bit more. Absolutely. And the, the long joke that we've had on, on this side of the border is that, you know, when, when the US uh, sneezes, Canada catches a cold, right? So we've long known that our economy is, is intertwined. But I, I think that the the response that we see in times like this, where we're catching their cold, uh, is that maybe we should undo some of that, or maybe we should be a little less intertwined with them. But that, that's kind of a, a, a bad approach to things that just because things are, are bad right now doesn't mean that you should undo a relationship. I think on any level where there's a, a relationship involved, right, you go through rocky times. And uh, as long as those rocky times are not so excessive that you can't imagine that the benefits in the future would outweigh the current costs, you don't undo it, right? And so if you think of your family unit, right, you have disagreements with your siblings or with your parents or with your children. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, but the fact is that there's more good than bad. And so all you do is you work your way through it, or you say that this is going to pass. And I, I don't think that we're at a stage where... Uh, where we're looking at the U.S. saying we're so deeply intertwined with you that uh, we're going to suffer more bad times than good. Therefore, we should divorce from you. Right. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned that um, you gave the analogy of basically when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. I want to hold on that a little bit. And basically, um, like, like, for example, when the U.S. fights inflation, let's say, for example, a week from now, Biden decides to lift the tariffs that Trump enacted during his pres presidency, the ones that you complained a little bit about in class. Like, what effect do you think that would have on, like, the Canadian economy, for example? It, it, it's good for both sides. The, the optimal tariff in the vast majority of cases is zero. So, you know, when, you, when you're putting a tariff on a product... The, the thought is that somehow this is, you know, for the good of the U.S. and to the detriment of Canada. Um, it's certainly to the detriment of Canada, but it's also to the detriment of the U.S. as well. Tariffs are usually only benefiting the sector that is competing against the sector that has the tariff applied against it. So, you know, when the Trump administration was putting tariffs on Canadian industries, it was only those industries in the U.S. that were not being tariffed that said, this is a good thing. Consumers in the US uh, were actually being harmed by the tariff. But you know, the thing with tariffs is that usually 
the consumers accumulate a lot of small costs. Now, a lot of small costs adds up to a very large number, uh, but that problem of collective thinking is that we only see it through our rational self-interest, right? So if I see that, hey, this is increasing my price by a couple of bucks, that, that stinks. But if hundreds of millions of people are also seeing increases by a couple of bucks here and there, that adds up to a lot. And so we tend to kind of shrug it off rather than realizing that, wait, this is imposing a lot of damage on the U.S. economy as well. So, you know, if the Biden administration wants to remove those tariffs, look, it's going to be good for the U.S. as a whole. The problem is that those American producers that have gotten comfortable not having to compete with Canadian industry because it has a tariff on it is going to find that all of a sudden they've been propped up in kind of the same way as government supports for other industries or for other individuals that is making them realize that, hey, maybe they're really not as solid as they thought. Yeah, well, listening to, listening to you give that answer about like who it affects got me thinking, do you, do you oppose many of the sanctions against Russia right now? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll be perfectly clear. I don't at all support what Russia is <laughs> up to in Ukraine, right? So let's, let's not conflate the two ideas. But no, sanctions in general are a very blunt tool that usually don't achieve what they're supposed to do. And so, you know, sanctions probably more than anything, allow us to sleep well at night saying, well, we did all we could. Um, you know, the reality is that we're not, and, and I'm not suggesting that we should, you know, we're not going to uh, pick up weapons and go uh, invade Russia or or fight on behalf of Ukraine, right? Yeah, because so of one, nuclear weapons, yeah. Beyond nuclear weapons, I just don't think that there's an appetite uh, in this part of the world to get involved in that particular conflict, right? It, it, it's nasty to say, but it's not in our self-interest, right? Yeah. Um, but but you you have a humanity element to uh, wait. It's not right though. So if we're not going to get involved militaristically, then what can we do? Well, sanctions are a great way that we can do something from here. And say that we've done our part, but it's just, I, I genuinely don't believe that these achieve what they're supposed to do. And I, I think the people that are going to suffer are the Russian people. Uh, and they're not really in a position where they can do much about it. Uh, that regime in Russia is not going to say, I see that you're suffering. I realize the error of my ways. So we're going to pull back out of Ukraine. It, it's just that they're going to suffer. Uh, and we feel better for the 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 outcome are there are there any econ economic measures that you would support that you think would target the right people or do you think they're all out of the cards um no i mean look if, if you really want to target the right people you can target the right people right so there's any number of russian oligarchs that are deeply tied to the putin administration that you basically just go grab their assets uh wherever they are in the world uh and say this is the result for your support of that regime, right? My particular area uh, that interests me as a researcher, sports economics, right, is that we're seeing right now that, you know, um, athletes are being targeted. Uh, you're not allowed to participate in this tournament uh, because of decisions taken by your state. Well, you know, athletes should be put in that position where they're, they're trying to make a living like anybody else. And to target them uh, is probably the wrong sort of thing. But again, we do it because we feel better about ourselves, right? This will teach Russia. Um, they love sports. So if we don't allow them to participate in international sports, this will force them to leave Ukraine. Probably not going to happen, uh, but we're going to mess up the livelihood of a bunch of people who have time-limited skills that are eroding if they can't participate in, in sport. But like the idea you mentioned of, for example, freezing the assets of Russian oligarchs that have a lot of connections to the to like Putin, for example, do you think that's like politically unpopular? Why do you think it's not being done? Yeah, well, I mean, look, when you when you have um, those oligarchs that have billions of dollars, whether they were legitimately or illegitimately gotten, uh, the fact is that you know billions of dollars buys you a lot of support uh, around the world. It buys you a lot of connections. It buys you a lot of influence. And I'm not talking in a corrupt sort of way. I'm just saying that when you're running those types of large companies, you can't help but make connections. And so you know you call in those those connections and say, wait a second, 
your government is looking at imposing sanctions on my business. And you should understand that if my business gets grabbed or if my assets get frozen or if my business gets shut out, this is going to have implications for your business that maybe has no other guilt other than by association. And so, you know, you can find then that this is kind of the the off-putting element of politics, but, uh, you know, connections matter. And when you're talking about billionaires that are connected to Putin, uh, the fact is that a lot of governments are saying it's probably more headache for us as a government than it brings benefit to our citizens. So uh, it, it's not the thing that's worth doing. There, there's not uh, a clamoring for it. We're not seeing protests in the street of grab their assets. So politicians say, all right, the path of least resistance then is we apply sanctions. Nobody seems to be upset about it. And let's just get on with our day. Yeah, I guess, um, which is kind of sad when you think about it, but um, that's how the world is, I guess. Um, but to change the to change the subject again, you mentioned to me that uh, you believe that like economics education should be subsidized. Would you mind explaining why to the audience? Sure. So I'm going to hit on a topic that that you really enjoyed uh, in class, which is the idea of the externality. Yes. Um, so you know. I, I think in general, we could make an argument that education provides what we would call a positive externality. So an externality is just the idea that in any transaction where you have a buyer and a seller, uh, they would, in theory, negotiate a price at which the seller will provide a good or service to the buyer. Uh, an externality is what if there's a third party that's outside of this transaction, but is affected by this transaction? So in that case, then the buyer and seller might fail to realize that their transaction comes with benefits or costs on broader society. And so education certainly fits that story. Any student is effectively uh, buying education from the university or college. That and that's like that's why public schools are paid for with taxpayer money, for example. Right. At, at the elementary level, that education is so valuable to society that if we just left parents uh, and school boards alone to figure out what's the appropriate price of education, parents would probably massively undereducate their kids um, because they would say that they're only thinking in their narrow self-interest of what's the benefit to me. As long as my kid can read and write, who cares if they really understand calculus, right? I don't see the point of it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, uh, public school at the elementary and secondary school is effectively saying that it is so much of a positive spillover benefit to broader society that we, we have to subsidize it to the point that it's free or maybe even paying you to go to school. At the university level, you know, it, it, there's a benefit to society, but it, it's maybe not as much, right? There, what, what's the old joke that everything that I learned uh, in life, I learned by the age of five, right? Everything yeah. else was detailed. So once you start getting to university, you know, you can start making the argument that there are certain degrees out there, certain uh, programs out there that maybe aren't providing that huge benefit to society uh, in the way that other degrees might. And so, you know, engineering and uh, medicine, these, these provide such powerful, powerful benefits to society that they should be paying less than the true cost of their education, uh, almost to the point that they should be getting it for free. Uh, and, and that should entice then the, the brightest minds in, in the world that, you know, they should be going out for engineering or medicine and for the benefits that, that can bring to society. Um, somewhat tongue in cheek, but somewhat legitimately, I think that economics falls into that category too. And so maybe not quite on the level of medicine and its ability to, uh, to, to help people's health and well-being. But economics is one of those key elements out there that you better know some basics and you better know it well uh, in order to kind of understand that there's a lot of uh, political BS that's out there uh, that's basically taking advantage of the fact that people don't understand economics well. And, you know, politics will beat out economics almost any day of the week. And I think that a lot of the problems that we have in the world these days is partly because of that lack of knowledge of what economics is all about and how it applies to every facet of life. I think a little bit of a good old fashioned subsidization is a way to entice people that might be going over towards other social sciences that, hey, uh, here's a discipline that you really need to be looking at a lot closer. Yeah, like the political BS that's out there, would you consider an example of that to be the idea we mentioned before that 
price price gouging is to blame for our current inflation? Um, yeah, I, I would even just say that we could use a different example that we were looking at, which is the the idea of putting tariffs uh, on Canadian industry. Right? It, it's a very compelling story. Um, minimum wage arguments are another one of those that. Uh, we're seeing minimum wage increases in Quebec uh, ahead of an election. Uh, that's not an accident that that's happening when there's a somewhat unpopular government looking to get reelected and they're looking for a little bit of maybe not so cheap uh, popularity by, by making a promise that businesses now have to pay higher prices, right? Uh, if you're a struggling student trying to make ends meet and you're seeing this inflation around you right now, hey, a higher minimum wage is a great thing, but maybe not realizing that there are economic consequences that tend to outweigh the positive. Uh, and that's the type of thing that a little bit of economics knowledge would help you be able to call out a politician and say, wait a second, I know what you're doing here. Uh, and I'm not voting for that. Uh, politicians would then have to kind of stick to uh, real economic issues rather than imaginary ones or over-exaggerated ones. All right, I'm going to return to the minimum wage issue later. But right now, I just wanted to ask when it comes to like how valuable a college degree is for society as a whole, what would you use to measure how valuable a college degree is? So the, the standard measure is you, you calculate the, the various benefits and costs. And if you end up with a net positive, then it's it's useful. So, you know, the easiest way to kind of imagine it is, if you take any particular job that's out there, uh, take a look at what would, say, somebody with just a high school diploma be worth in that position, and what would somebody with a bachelor's degree be worth in that position? Uh, if you can, maybe a little bit difficult with the- But like, this, like in this case, the, like the benefits would be like the profit of the firm itself? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so it could just be, what's your productivity value to me? So if you have a high school degree and you come work for me, and by working for me, you generate, say, $20,000 worth of net benefit. By net, I mean after I finished paying you. But if you had a bachelor's degree, you would generate $50,000 worth of net benefit to me. Presumably, I'd pay you more, but you'd be more productive. And that's why I have that extra $30,000 in profit. Then to me, you getting that university education is worthwhile. What you would say is that from your standpoint, you go from uh, earning a particular salary with a high school degree to earning a particular salary with a university degree. If you can justify that that extra value over 40 years of working life put into present value terms is greater than the expenditure and lost income you incurred while you were in university, then going and getting that university degree is a win-win. Good for me as the employer, good for you as the employee, and you're going to go do it. And that's the way that we figure out then kind of why some people should go to university and why some people should not, is that maybe there's just not a benefit there for them to do so. I'm going to, I'm going to try to push back against that a little bit. Are we using income as a way to measure how valuable a degree is to society? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, do you, do you think that it's possible that like there might be some benefits that can't really be measured in income? No. So um, I, 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 I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I'm, I'm being flippant just to be my, my usual professorial self. Um, yeah. yeah, look, it, I, I think that one of the things that in general economics will hold by is that everything can be turned into a dollar amount. Sounds grubby. And it's usually the thing that sends people running in September for uh, a degree in psychology or for a degree in, in sociology is that maybe it, you know, those degrees don't quite create that sort of uh, money grubbiness to it. But no, I, I, anything can be turned into a dollar amount. It's just a matter of being honest with yourself. So if you say that, hey, this job provides me with a certain level of happiness, and that happiness can't be quantified, yes, it can. Um, I'm going to take away that particular aspect of the job that provides you with that happiness. How much extra money do I have to give you for you to relinquish that particular benefit, right? Um, there is a number. And so that number then is what that particular element of happiness is worth. So, you know, as an example, there are people who say that they love their job because they love their coworkers. Okay, uh, I'm not going to have you work from home. You're not going to get to be around those coworkers anymore. You need to go work at home. Uh, nobody's going to like that if they like being around their coworkers. But if I said, I'll give you an extra $5,000 a year, go home. 
They might say, no, I'm sorry. I want to be around my coworkers. Okay. I'll give you an extra 10,000 a year, 20,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand. At that point, that's where you go around from door to door and start handshaking or elbow bumping or toe tapping your, your coworkers. But do you think, do you think that like humans can always accurately assess like, like if, if I were to go by your idea of like using money to calculate how like worthwhile something is to society, do you think that humans are always like rat, like rational enough to know how much a certain thing is worth to them? Um, yeah, I, I mean, they, they have that capacity. They just need to think about it. Right. And so I think that the, the issue is they've maybe just never had to think about it. Um, but I think that one of the things that we've noticed, for example, during the pandemic, with my analogy of going and working from home, is that we kind of realized that, you know, working from home maybe wasn't as bad as we thought. Or, or for some people, it, it was catastrophically bad, and, and you couldn't pay me enough to go back and work from home. Or, um, and, and I think that, you know, if somebody were to actually make an offer, uh, that would start to focus mind. So it's not that the employer necessarily has to go to the employee. The employee could say, listen, I, I really want to come back to the office. Okay. I, you have no idea how incredibly hard it's been on me psychologically to be locked up. Uh, look, you can reduce my salary by $5,000 if you just let me come back. You know, what they're doing is they're kind of realizing that, you know, money can be associated with these various things. It's just they never had to think about it or they were never put in a position where they had to make that offer. But uh, that's the way the market works is that it, it focuses minds that, yeah, most stuff can be reduced to a dollar amount. Uh, do you think that like um, when it comes to how, how much someone views like an in-person like office, for example, to be worthwhile to their job, you think it would be better to measure that in terms of like the strict dollar amount or like the percentage of their income, for example? No, uh, a strict dollar amount is fine. Uh, you know, you can always convert that into percentages after the fact. But um, you know, if if you put it in percentages, that that can start to cloud things, right? So, uh, on the presumption that I'm earning more than you, Andrew, if I were to say that I'd be willing to give up one percent of my salary, um, would you be willing to give up one percent of your salary? We're not really comparing like to like, right? Because from the business's standpoint. A 1% cost savings on me is different than a 1% cost savings on you. So, you know, I, I think if we just reduce it to a dollar story, you and I can do the proper calculations to figure out what that is in percent uh, and, and the business as well. But I do think that like the the lower our income is, the more like $5,000 matters to us individually, for example. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And, and so... Again, from the business's standpoint, though, they're not necessarily viewing the the dollar amount as the the end story anyway. I don't know necessarily that they're viewing it in percentage terms, but they'd be saying, all right, so we get to save uh, $5,000 on you, Andrew, uh, by coming back into the office. But your productivity gain is not worth the amount that we're, we're spending or that we're saving or that your productivity fall by now being distracted by your coworkers is not enough to justify it. So, you know, again, business is going to reduce this to a dollar amount uh, and they're going to say that, all right, it's a net positive for us to have you back in the office. So welcome back. Or you know what? You didn't hit the right number there. Uh, so thanks, but no, would rather you stay at home. I know you're miserable, but um, it's worth it to us. And, and look, that's the type of thing where you could say, all right, then I'm going to start looking for another job. And that's what creates the dynamic sort of economy then where people are kind of best matched to where their skills are valued and appreciated. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to change the subject again. I just wanted to ask you, would you consider it reasonable to say that economists have become more amiable to the idea of a minimum wage over like the past two or three decades? Um, I, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that economists were ever against the idea of a minimum wage. I, I think the problem is that when you introduce that minimum wage, it's what exactly is the contract between the employer and the employee. So if the contract between the employer and the employee is that I will hire you as long as your value to me is greater than what I have to pay to you, and you will work for me as long as what I pay to you is worth more than your pain and suffering for working for me, then we have a contract. Now, if I have a lot of leverage and I can push the wage down on you just to a point where 
it's enough for you to show up, but you're not receiving a lot of that benefit, um, then a minimum wage might help to kind of rebalance some of that power structure. The problem is that once you try and rebalance that power structure, there's a lot of people out there who say, I'd be willing to work at that minimum wage, but an employer says, but you're not worth it to me. And that person then gets displaced or unemployed as a result. And they're now going to become dependent on government spending to prop them up. That's being paid for by existing employees. And so there's kind of a complicated contract that's developed there between society then that as long as current workers are prepared to pay taxes to finance current unemployed people, then you can have as high a minimum wage as you want. Um, I, I think that economists have always understood that that's the implicit trade-off. It's just, again, I don't think that people, non-economists, necessarily understand that that's the, the complicated trade-off that's involved there. And so uh, I, I don't know that it's really necessarily that we become more amenable to it. It's just we continue to recognize that it can potentially be a really bad thing, especially when people don't really understand what it is that they're voting for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, is there a number that you personally think the minimum wage should be in like Montreal, for example? No, no. I, I, I think that, you know, the, the fear that we have is we're, we're, kind of brought up on these Dickensian stories, right? You know, Oliver Twist and working for like a pittance and um, th that's not going to happen. Uh, even if Amazon were to flex its full muscles and try and exploit workers, you're not going to see people working for a dollar a day, $2 a day in this part of the world. And, and so if that's not going to happen then, then what's going to happen is that you're actually going to find that employment increases, unemployment falls, the amount of payroll taxes that we have to contribute to the government falls as well. And so, you know, it's fine that your wage might fall, but your take-home pay could actually go up. And so I, I think that if we try and pin down a particular number and say that this is the bare minimum, it's, it's a dangerous path because there are people out there who would be willing to work for less. There are people out there who are worth less than that. And we're excluding them from the, the labor market and not allowing them to participate because of this minimum wage. Okay. Um, final question. So you mentioned that intro micro is your favorite course to teach. Do you have like a second favorite course to teach? Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I, hmm. so I guess it's like asking, you know, to pick your favorite child, right? You know, I love yeah. all my children equally. Um, I, I really enjoy my sports economics class. I, I, I've effectively built that from, from scratch. And so there's kind of a, a nice feeling of uh, building something uh, from, from the beginning there and watching it grow. Um, I, I, I'm always, uh, I, I don't know, I, I guess I kind of enjoy and am horrified at the same time that when I teach that course to students, um, you know, students come in there thinking, oh, well, we're just going to talk sports. And when they see that, you know, even economics uh, is involved in sports decisions and that these are businesses just like Amazon, just like Google, just like Walmart, um, there's this element where you kind of feel good on the one hand that like, hey, I, I, I showed them something. And on the other hand, you kind of say, and have I just ruined their sports experience going forward where it's been reduced to it's a business just like Amazon, Google, or Walmart. And, and did I take maybe some joy out of their lives where they can't watch it the same way that they did before? Because they now understand that, yes, economic forces are even to play in that. But, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a, I guess it's one of those love-hate sort of relationships that I, I, I enjoy that particular course, but um, it, it, it gets easier as the word gets out from students that have taken in the past that, hey, watch this course, it's really interesting, but you got to pay attention to, to what's going on there too. Yeah. And then obviously the downside is that like those students in the future, when they're like watching sports, they might not have the same like sense of wonderment to it because they can all just like distill it into like mathematical and economic models. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it is that, you know, I, I used to use in my intro micro class, the analogy that any TV show uh, employs the idea of diminishing marginal returns in the way that they write their scripts. Uh, and, you know, it's a great example that students appreciate and they say, okay, I, I can see the, the application, but then you get students to come back and say, 
I have a really difficult time watching TV anymore because all I can think about is the example that you just fed into my head. And that idea that, you know, economics is now really starting to permeate in, in my daily life that it, it really is now um, like I'm, I'm constantly living my, my courses and I can't escape. <laughs> yeah. All right. Moshe Lanter, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. My pleasure. Anytime you like. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.